The Agronomist is brought to you by Pests and Predators, Wheatpeat's Word, and The Wheat School. From varietal advancements, protein and yield management, precision farming, and on to marketing, Real Agriculture's Wheat School video series tackles every facet of the wheat growing season in an engaging and informative format. The Wheat School is made possible through Syngenta Canada, CNM Seeds, and Alberta Grains. Learn more at wheatschool.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Agronomist Tonight Show. Well, we're going to do our best. I'm joining you from sunny Sudbury in northern Ontario, where I was attending the Northern Ontario Agriculture Conference. Really great day. Uh, but we are using and, and trusting the hotel Wi-Fi gods uh, to make this show happen. So we're going to see uh, how this goes. But welcome all to the Agronomist. Uh, thank you for joining me here. Super excited about tonight's show. Um, excited to have my guests here. And one who is joining us probably from the furthest any guest ever has. But we'll get to that in a minute. First, of course, wanted to remind everybody, head on over to realagriculture.com slash agronomist tomorrow. Let us know you watch the show uh, and uh, collect those CEU credits. You can also, while you're there, sign up for the email blast that will actually email you the day of the show, remind you what tonight's topic is uh, and the link there. So it makes it really quick and easy to find us at 8 p.m. Eastern. All right, tonight's topic. Um, oh, just quickly. Hello, Ray. Hello, Kevin. Thank you for being on and commenting so early. Um, all right. Let's bring in our guests from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. We have Tyler Wist. But yes, based at Brandon, but not in Brandon right now. We have Santosh Kumar joining us from New Zealand. Welcome here, Tyler and Santosh. Okay. Let's start. Tyler, I know, you know, you have a lot to say, but I'm going to focus on Santosh for a moment because... We don't often get guests joining us from New Zealand. So, uh, Santosh, what take? Yeah, what takes you to New Zealand this time of year? All right. So, um, I'm a weed breeder, and uh, in Canada, we have uh, the summer and snow rotation. So, we get one crop during the summer, and we want to release the varieties, develop the varieties quickly. So, we send all our harvest or the selected harvest to the winter nursery in New Zealand, and that's where we come and make selections and uh, send it back to Canada to grow. And that way we are able to reduce the time that it takes to breed a new variety. So it gets uh, the genetics faster into the, the farmer's hands. Okay, so um, you are making selections now in New Zealand. And that then that, right? And then the selections you make from this, they'll come back to Canada to be put into plots in Brandon again. Brandon and many other locations. Yeah, so exciting. Uh, yes, Kevin's reminding me it's 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We have a very big country here. It's also, I think it's 2 p.m. tomorrow where Santosh is. So there you go. Okay. Uh, who can keep track? <laughs> right. In the How is the future, um, Santosh? Yeah, exactly. Right. How, How is the future tomorrow? Look? Yeah. Bright. Yeah. Tomorrow actually is Canada's Ag Day. Uh, so you can celebrate it now, Santosh. Uh, Tyler, how is Saskatoon? What keeps you busy in the winter months? <laughs> I've had people ask me that before. What do you bug guys do in the winter? Well, yeah. what I worked on today was trying to fix our wheat co-op data set. Uh, that took mm. me a good portion of the day. Then so at the end of the like day... I needed to answer some questions to the funders. Oh. What do I mean by fix it? Oh, yeah. Mm. Was it messy? Noisy? Noisy data? I hear that. No. That sometimes. Tyler's copy oh. and paste issues. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. 
Yeah. Anyway, so and, I'm gonna, and questions online, of funders. Okay. I'm going to apologize to Santosh for uh, that messy data. It's coming back mm. together now. Because Santosh okay. is one of the ones who receives it. And then we take that okay. data, or the breeders take that data, and they say, this line here has got the SM1 gene, and it's working. So it is presenting as tolerant to wheat midge. And if they don't get that data, then they have to leave that out of the report. Mm, this is very important. And so tonight, for this conversation, we are going to talk about the SM1 gene and many others. Uh, but first, let's talk about the foe that we are up against. Uh, and so, Tyler, I'll start with you. Uh, we do have a little video clip that I'm going to play a little bit later, which is about scouting for wheat midge. And it was from, I believe, four years ago, I want to say. And so, mm -hmm. Santos, you're going you're gonna to update us on all the cool new varieties coming. Uh, but, Tyler, tell us about the foe, the wheat midge that uh, prairie farmers are battling against. What do we need to know about it? All right. So first, let's start with that video that we did four years ago while I was standing in a wheat field. Um, and I'm going to throw it out to our listeners to say, can you spot Tyler's error in that video? And then after oh. the video, I'll, I'll bring it back. Okay. Yeah. I like okay. doing um, audience participation. I'll tell you <laughs> so you want to go to the video? You want to go to the video right now? No, and let's talk, talk about the wheat okay. midge. Okay, good. I was sure. Say. Yeah, let's. I don't, I'm not running the show. You're running the show, Lindsay. We're doing what you want to do. <laughs> That's right. Um, okay, uh, Dave Hooker has joined a smidge late. I like puns. Oh, uh, Dr. Yeah. Dave Hooker gets a gold <laughs> star. Okay. Okay, so Can you send him a hat? I think yeah. you should send him a hat for that joke. <laughs> I should send him a hat. Um, nope. Producer Jay, can you write down... Who Probably all steal that joke. Yeah, there you go. You, well, you talk to Dave Hooker about it. Okay, Midge, uh, tiny little orange insect. What damage yeah. does it does it do to wheat? Okay, so you're thinking, why is this little orange fly such a menace? So, mm -hmm. the whole thing is called the orange wheat blossom midge. It goes after, it goes after the blossoms of wheat, which are not very evident. Um, right, they don't look like our normal flowers, but if you're a wheat breeder like Santosh, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so they'll target those individual spikelets or florets. And who's doing the targeting? Well, the female wheat midge. So she comes out of the ground and she's really well synchronized with the spring wheat in uh, Western Canada, at least. And she lays her eggs. She likes to lay the eggs under the gloom, which is this covering that goes over top of the kernel. So, I don't know. There we go. There we go. Yep. Gloom's covering the kernel. So, eggs go in here. Larvae hatch. And it's the larvae that are the damaging phase. So, if you're not an entomologist, a larva is the juvenile form of an insect. So, uh, you got some pictures of larvae there, I believe. And uh, we can tell you where the orange part comes in, because check right. these things out. Mm -hmm. Now, okay, while we're, yeah. So that is pupa. orange. That one's a that pupa. Is. Yeah. So, but check that's... out what's going on in this pupa. You see that? It's got devil horns. So it tells you a bit <laughs> about what's going on. This is, yeah, that is hideous, actually. You probably think it's, you know, beautiful. I'm going I to think that's super cool. That I printed this one out and I gave it to okay. Dr. Martin Erlinson for his mm -hmm. retirement present. 
That is kind. Now, did you leave it in this orientation, or do you stand it up so it makes it look even more ominous? Oh yeah. So yeah, I had it mm-hmm. zoomed right in, stood up, and right beside yeah. it was uh, uh-huh. the ascension number because Martin was working on like characterizing the whole genome of the wheat midge. Jeepers creepers. Okay, these yeah, are very. So I used the ascension number that he had put up onto the yeah. barcode of life database. Very nice. And I may have gotten that completely wrong because that was a few years ago. (laughs) I definitely gave him a picture of a wheat midge pupa, but not the one that he used because that got turned into nothing but DNA. Right. But Uh, it is orange. And so that's where the the name of the orange wheat blossom midge comes in. Now, if you're a breeder, you just call it the midge. And most producers will just call it the midge as well. There are other midges out there. But most that of them was, aren't going after your kernels of wheat. That was my question. Okay, so this There's this is female. an adult. Look at her. Yeah. How do, so, how do you know it's a female? Well, because she's sitting on a wheat head, first oh. of all. Okay. The males, the males like sitting on the females. They don't really sit on the wheat heads. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So I can also look at her ovipositor. Which, mm-hmm. if uh, if I had a pointer, I'd be pointing at the bottom end of her abdomen, which is pointy. So that's her business okay. end for laying eggs. And then All I can right. also look at the other end of her, and she's got short little antennae compared to the male. And on the female, okay. they often kind of curl up and back. Mm. And Very so the pretty. male have really long antennae, and they've got lots of long sensile trichodia. And they use that for smelling the female. Because, like mm. I said, they... Pheromones. Pheromones, exactly. Yeah. And okay. so we use those pheromones against the wheat midge. So we can uh, bring them into traps and count them by the hundreds in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. But what we're counting are the male wheat midge. And so when we're looking at correlations between females on heads and males on cards, it's just and damage in plants. It's really tough in Western Canada with such huge fields to just make it all work. I'm still mm-hmm. trying, but uh, hoping we'll get there eventually. So she's looking for wheat that is susceptible. So we're looking at Zadok stage 50 to about 60. So okay. when that plant gets into about full anthesis, it actually becomes less attractive to the female wheat midge because her offspring don't do as well on the later stage wheat. She will potentially still lay eggs on there, but she's looking for those younger heads. And as soon as that boot splits and you can see the spike of wheat starting to come out, so can she. And she'll start laying eggs on it. Okay. So um, for producers or agronomists who are scouting, if you're in a problem area, which we're going to talk about some of those hot spots. Um, do you start scouting at, you know, early, early heading or do you give it a little while? How, how early do you start? So you want to start as soon as that boot splits or really, if okay. you're part of the, um, the CCAN hashtag Midgebusters pheromone monitoring network, you start when you start seeing a whole lot of males stuck on your pheromone traps. Okay. Also a good indication. Okay. Yeah, so the males come out a day or two before the females, and so they're a really good indication that you should be out there scouting your fields for females. Okay. Now, Santosh, you're based at Brandon. 
Um, and we will bring up, we've got a Saskatchewan map of the 2023 year. Um, Manitoba doesn't do a survey, but is it difficult at Brandon to judge how well a variety does against Midge? Do you ever have to worry about releasing some of these beasts or are they all there? Oh, they, um, Brandon is, um, has been uh, a very high infestation area for wheat midge um, since I joined the program. So we never had any issues with screening for midge resistance. Uh, typically a variety that is grown at Brandon will do better if it has midge resistance. So mm. if there is a line that is susceptible, it automatically yields less than a resistant variety. So we actively or passively select uh, for wheat, wheat midge uh, resistance because the varieties that do have the resistance do well in the yield trials. Yeah, okay, so let's. Okay, right. Well, it's your best because it's bad. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> you always have to qualify best for an entomologist. It doesn't often work mm-hmm. as best for a producer or a wheat breeder. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so Santosh, walk me through. We're going to talk about how you develop a, a cultivar, um, but. If you could paint a picture for me of what what it's like when you're screening for these lines, um, do you do you assess for midge damage at the end of the year? Are you scouting early in the season? What does that look like as far as how you judge um, how a variety does against midge? Okay, so in the breeding world, we always say that you know a bag of yield, uh, a bag of seed as yield, is always the best indicator of whatever happened during the season. Um, if the midge resistance is there, it will yield more. But yes, we do scout fields for um, for presence of midge. Uh, typically, when we send data or samples to to Tyler, we make sure that we have enough pressure and we haven't uh, had any poor years of uh, infestation yet. Every year there is lots of midge, so we do um, do the scouting uh, as Tyler suggested, and. We do um, just crush a few grains in our um, in our hands and look at uh, what comes out. Uh, typically, uh, if the larva is present, uh, we are able to see it. Um, if the damage is there, we are able to see it on the seeds. And then we know that um, uh, there is much pressure. There is decent amount of pressure. We don't actually do counting because we have gotten away from that laborious process when we have to do other things. But as long as the damage is present, it infers that uh, the larva is present as well. Mm-hmm. Tyler, what is the damage? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, no, go ahead. Yeah, Tyler, what does the damage look like? Like, is it shriveled kernels? Do they have, like, pockmark? What, is it, what does it look like? Yeah. Why don't we throw that image up there, Producer Jay? So, we had a nasty when we're dissecting. Larva. Yeah. Do we? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so. On the left, decent looking seed, and then it just gets worse. So mm-hmm. you see that one second from the right, it's cracked open, it's split. And then the one on the very right, what we've got there, we call those damaged, unharvestable. Those just blow out the back of the combine. So that's that yield mm-hmm. loss that Santosh is talking about. The, um, the one that's cracked may stay in your sample, and then mm-hmm. you, that, lead, that can lead to grade losses when it goes to the elevator. Um, cause all of your samples get, get looked at for midge damage and those, those cracked seeds can get into there and it'll mess with the falling number of the wheat. 
Mm. It's kind of ugly. Won't lie. Um, totally. Yeah, it really is. Okay, and so it it is a yield concern, but it is a quality concern as well, Santosh. So, yeah, yeah it it can be if it's if it's bad enough. So, um, when you're, how does that work its way? How does the quality component work its way into your breeding program, Santosh? Um, great point. So, um, when when we develop a wheat uh, variety, uh, I typically deal with the Canada Western Red Spring CWRS variety and after the harvest, it's sent to um, Canadian Grain Commission, um, Grain Quality Lab, and they assess the damage and provide the grading. So if the damage is quite high, I mean, if it's really bad, then it just flows out of the combine. But if it's bad, it looks, um, the grains look damaged and, and they are then downgraded. So then that gives us indication of how much, uh, how much damage is there and that way we are able to screen the line in into the breeding program or discard it altogether. Um, mm -hmm. We, for early generation lines, we do it in-house. So within the breeding program, we are able to look at the, the kernels and, and and decide that way because, uh, you know, when you are going through many different um, traits, one of the traits is put the put a little bit of seed in, in white cups and just look at their physical appearance. And that's an indication of how much damage is there. So if the lines are really bad, then we just discard those lines and they are no longer part of the breeding program. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're talking about screening, that is, that's not within the, the SM1 gene lines or is that only within those? Are you doing this for all varieties that you're assessing? So we go through all the varieties because early in the generation, we don't know which lines have the SM1 mm -hmm. gene. Um, if if a cross is made, why don't we put on the breeding pipeline and I'll be able to explain sure, it yeah. if that works. Let's yeah, let's, let's get excited about it. They, it right. is really cool. All right. Okay. It's, it's a busy slide, but I'll go through it. So bear with me, please. Um, so if you're looking at P1, which is the female parent in this case, and P2 is the male parent, a cross is made to bring in traits, bring in um, uh, important traits that are uh, that make the variety better for Canadian farmers. For example, if you have the male parent which has the SM1 gene and a female parent that mm -hmm. doesn't, then that gene starts to move around in, in the breeding right. pipeline as we go through. So many populations that are developed from these crosses may or may not have the gene. So the first step is to look at the morphological, as I said, the seeds in the cups. But as we go further and keep selecting lines, our population tends to have more lines with SM1 gene present right. because we are discarding the ones that don't have it and they, they yield poorly at Brandon. So that's one aspect right. of it where you're looking at um, presence and absence of the trait itself, the damage then you can also supplement it by the markers and and that we'll talk about a little bit later but that's exactly how we incorporate the trait work with it within, within the breeding program and finally hopefully at the end of it we'll have a line that is much tolerant if it has other traits that we need in breeding program mm -hmm. so just going through this um or do you have a question well i was just going to say uh, you mentioned at Brandon, if a variety doesn't yield well, 
it's probably because it doesn't have yield it doesn't have Mitch uh, resistance or tolerance. Um, and so of course, as you put there with the agronomic objectives, if a line doesn't have the yields, it doesn't move on anyway, right? So no. it sort of becomes you're selecting one anyway uh, for the other. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Just, uh, all right. Next slide, Jay. So in okay. this, uh, I'm exclusively showing how, um, how I do um, midge resistance breeding. Uh, and that's typical for any breeder within uh, within the Canadian context, be it uh, from AFC or from universities or, or private breeding companies. They follow a very similar uh, pathway. The first step is to find a parent um, that has midge tolerance. Uh, it can be male or female in the crosses. And then if the two varieties that you are bringing together are very good, they are very CWRS worthy varieties, then we put it through a pipeline called double haploids. And what it does is that it allows us to get the homogeneity and uniformity in the population very soon. So you don't have to go through uh, F1s, two, three, four, five, six, you directly reach the F7. It saves a lot of time. Within a year or a year and a half, you have saved four years. And that brings the SM1 gene into the population at a uniform uh, and a stable uh, stable way and then we move it into the advanced testing so the double haploids are made uh, and that we call it early generation if we don't make the double haploids it does go through those breeding pipeline where we are making the f1s then we send you know screen the f2s send the f3s to to new zealand f4 goes back to canada f5 comes to new zealand and so on and so forth but once we reach a stable and uniform population, then we start testing it in multiple locations. Because let's say I'm, an, I'm working from Brandon, but the variety that we release is not only for Brandon, it can grow across Western Canada. So we have to test the suitability of the line across many regions, all three prairie provinces. And that's when the advanced testing uh, results show us. Once we have that done, we make sure that at one of those stages, we actually do physical screening or marker screening for the SM1 because so far we are just going by the results that are passive. Right. Once the marker selection or physical selection is done, that's when the lines enter into the registration trial. And that's very critical. It's mandated by Canadian Food Inspection Agency and we all the breeders put their best lines forward into the registration trial. And you can see that in all three years of the registration trial, which testing is compulsory. So that's mm -hmm. where Tyler comes in and he makes sure that he gets the data from all three um, years of the registration trial. And he evaluates the lines for resistance or susceptibility to the MEDGE. Once that data is compiled, we, we are able to register a variety either as susceptible or resistant mm -hmm. to SM1 or weak MEDGE. Weak MEDGE. And so this is where Tyler's copy paste problems come in. Um, okay, so I want to take a, just a quick pause. We're going to, because uh, I want to follow this through, um, through a little bit further and talk about, as you said, the genetic markers in the SM1 gene. Uh, we're just going to take a quick moment to thank uh, tonight's sponsor or one of tonight's sponsors, uh, and then we'll get back to this conversation. 
Our sponsors for The Agronomist are Wheat Pete's Word, The Wheat School, and Pest and Predators. The Pest and Predators podcast series features top entomologists introducing the insect field heroes hard at work for Canadian farmers. Powered by the Western Grains Research Foundation, Pest and Predators is an in-depth look at many insects who share our fields. Find out more at Real Agriculture to download the podcast or visit fieldheroes.ca. Look at all those field heroes. Uh, I was in a chat today, Tyler, uh, where one of the researchers, she's doing her master's at the University of Manitoba, is looking at ground beetles and a native pollinator, a native bee species, um, and measuring that in uh, with crop diversity. It was a fascinating discussion, and uh, you'd probably enjoy it. Um, all right. Uh, hello, everyone. Welcome back here. I think you would have. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we've got a we've got a question that's come in, and and I think we've talked about this one before. Um, and Tyler, I know you're in Saskatchewan, but let's talk about timing and where some of these uh, show up. So there are, of course, many different kinds of midge. Uh, in Ontario, we have Swede midge that attacks canola and is pretty nasty. Uh, it's, it's why a lot of producers won't grow spring canola. We grow winter canola here in Ontario. Um, but there isn't necessarily um, a lot of damage in wheat due to wheat midge here in Ontario. We do grow mostly winter wheat. So uh, we have the pest here. Is winter wheat in Western Canada uh, uh, under threat of midge, or is it really just our spring wheat lines that are a problem? So spring wheat is synchronized well with the life cycle of the wheat midge. Winter wheat is not. So winter wheat does what we call escape. And so it heads out before the wheat midge come out of the ground. So that's likely mm-hmm. what's going on in Ontario. Mm-hmm. Um, I know we're not talking about uh, the canola midge or sweet midge, um, but just quickly, right. we do have, we do have a, we have a, is it called canola midge? It's not sweet midge, right? We established that. that in Western Canada, Canada, yeah, we have a, a new-ish midge that's now new-ish. called a flower midge. Yeah. Okay, yeah. new-ish. Okay. Yeah. Canola and you can, flower. You midge. can uh, check up on Dr. Boyd Morey's work. He's probably been on the agronomists okay. talking about that. And you might have to take away okay. Dave's hat if he thinks mm. we're talking about Swede midge right now, because it's a totally <laughs> different species. He d- he does not. Uh, he was just sort of adding some context. So don't worry, Dr. Dave still gets a hat. Um, okay. okay. Yeah. So no worries there. Um, yeah, we got it. But uh, definitely differences between east and west but as you mentioned it's the timing of when the heads are coming out and the females are emerging that really make it the issue for for spring wheat okay so that is important um okay so santosh um let's let's come back to the sm1 gene because this is what we have as far as resistance within our wheat lines uh, right. We do have the SM1 gene in many in many lines. Um, however, that is as as far as we know, Santosh is that the only resistance gene that we've worked into cultivars at this time. Um, yes, yes, uh, but I just want to add a few a uh, little bit more context to it. So there are two methods of resistance. Uh, one is the antibiasis, which is based on SM1, Pseudodiplosis melissina 1 gene. Uh, it's the name of the insect, and we call the, mm-hmm. the gene by the name S- of the insect. M. Yeah. Um, S- SM. SM. Yeah. Got it. 
serodiplosis mulosinum. Um, and this is the first gene and the only gene so far. That's why we call it SM1. Uh, so that's antibasis, the only one. Uh, and then there is the other type of resistance called antizenosis, which is called the oviposition deference. Now, it's not mm. as effective as the antibiosis because it literally kills the larva when it feeds. Antizenosis is where the larva is still able to infect and cause damage, but it, there are volatile compounds in the wheat spike that minimizes that damage. It doesn't stop it. It doesn't stop the larva or kills it. So there are two okay. mechanisms, one very effective, one not so effective. So we want to use it together and we try to bring those true traits together in the varieties. Um, the SM1 gene, um, just a little bit of history. Um, back back in the day, Julian, uh, Julian Thomas, who was a um, cytogenetist at uh, CRC Winnipeg, he was studying this trait uh, with many other uh, breeders and, and geneticists. And he did a cross between Augusta and HWA line. Um, and that's when they found out that it's present on chromosome, um, I think it's 2BS. Um, wheat has uh, um, many different chromosomes. Um, mm -hmm. 2BS means uh, it's coming from the B um, uh, component of the chromosome and S means it's the small arm of the chromosome on chromosome 2BS. And that's where also the leaf rust resistant gene is present, LR16. Yeah. But basically that, that gene was it's the first time we were shown that this is, this is the gene and a marker was developed. That's when it became mainstream trade development work for breeding. When we knew that it provides resistance and we had a marker to use it. Then many lines were tested in Canada and one of the lines was Clark. And, um, Dr. Stephen Fox, uh, my predecessor in the breeding program, he started making some crosses. And the first line that came out of the program um, was unity. And some of you may know okay. that. Um, <laughs> I just saw the comment. <laughs> uh, Santosh, I warned you not to read the comments. <laughs> but yes, yes, Ray. Sorry. I uh, anyways. Of humor. Uh-huh, it's true. Uh, mm -hmm. So um, BS or not to BS, yes. It is 2BS. Right. Yes, it is. It is 2BS. So, uh, okay, so uh, Unity. Yeah, which that one Unity. is relatively familiar. Yeah. Yes, and it's, it's, it was the first CWRS line, in, in, uh, as far as I know, that had the, the SM1 gene in it. And it was a cross between, um, I think it was McKenzie, which was the first DH line produced. Uh, then there was... Um, um, another line BW174, and then it was crossed to Clark. So Clark became the donor of the line where 174 and Clark was crossed first, and then it was crossed to McKenzie. Um, and that's how Unity was developed after many years of selections. And the crew that I work with was part of that uh, team that actually brought this cross into, into a CWRS gen process. So that's a little bit of history on, on SM1. Um, we now have, with a recent publication out of Kurt McCartney's lab, where we have the oviposition deterrence gene on 1A, chromosome 1A, and that now we have a, a good means to start bringing those two together and have mm -hmm. uh, both of those mechanisms in one plant. 
because we do need to protect the SM1 gene, as we mentioned, Tyler and I have worked really, you know, into, yeah. into this, that we have to protect this gene. Uh, we have evidence from um, Marjorie Smith work that if we just keep using the SM1 gene without having a refuge in the variety, the midge insect will get resistance to this gene very quickly. And that's how the midge stewardship came in uh, to protect the gene. So those are two options available to us uh, that allows us to, to maintain the resistance to this, uh, to, to this insect. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, Tyler, I don't think there are any more um, chemical options to control this uh, insect anymore. Mm. It's a good we question. have one, one chemical control option left. So dimethoate is okay. still registered. It's less right. effective and it acts on the adults. So you really have to be, you have to really target them well. So Whereas, when do they, and they fly in the evening, do they not? Like Yeah, so fast? if you're scouting and spraying, it's about 8.30 at night mm. that you're out there looking for these things, 8.30 Which on, that, so dawn and dusk. That, yeah, that could be other problems that you run into as far as spraying. So, yeah, so I guess that's, that is one of my questions, and I know it's in the clip, which we're going to go to in just a minute. Um, I think I left it in there, uh, but that's just it. This isn't necessarily, like a lot of our insect uh, enemies, spraying is not always necessarily an easy decision. Um, maybe the numbers are there, but as you mentioned, Tyler, I mean, control options might be very limited, or the timing mm -hmm. might have to be absolutely bang on, or you're not necessarily going to get the effect that you're looking for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, I want to, I, I have a question for you, uh, Tyler, about the SM1 gene and this, the other gene that's on the 1A, not the 2BS um, chromosome. I, I, Santosh, we should have brought like a, a layout of like the wheat genome because it's ridiculous. Um, anyway, but it's very complicated. All you wheat readers are amazing. Okay, but producer Jay, if you could, we're going to throw to this, uh, this ancient history video here that Tyler did in a field a couple years ago. And, and Tyler, you said we have to spot the error. Is yep. that right? Spot the okay. error. Spot the error. Let's head to a field out in Saskatchewan and spot the error. Right. So what you're looking for is you want to be at the lake on the long weekend in July and you don't want to be in your field scouting for wheat midge, but that's typically when they start to come out. So you get your boat in the background. You want to be looking for your wheat midge at dawn or at dusk because that's when they like to fly. So they, during the daytime, sit down in the canopy. You won't see them until things get calm, sun goes down, and hopefully there's enough light for you to see them. What you're looking for is you are looking for these little delicate orange flies flying around the top of your canopy right around that first week in July. So they're really well timed to the spring rains. So they need 25 millimeters of rain to kickstart their development in the ground. And what else does your wheat crop need? About the same amount. So they're really well timed with the emergence of spring wheat. They know so their stuff. That's why there's such a big pest here on the No prairies. kidding, no kidding. What is uh, yield loss like? So yield loss, if you've got at our economic threshold, which is one on 10 heads, that's where you start to lose yield. If you've got one on 10 heads, we're looking at about a 15% yield loss. Now, one on 10 heads is not a lot. So you're looking in the canopy and you're watching 10 heads. Now, 
Another problem that wheat midge can cause is grade loss. So when those wheat midge larvae tap into the kernel, those kernels shrivel up. And if they shrivel up enough, they'll just blow out the back of the combine. They won't go into your wheat sample. If your seeds are only slightly damaged, that'll go in in your sample and you can get grade loss. So the economic threshold for protecting your grade is more like one on five heads. So that's what we're looking at. One on five or one on ten. Mm -hmm. Anything to really combat it now? So at that point in time, if you decide that you have a problem in your field and you haven't planted a midge tolerant variety, you're probably going to want to get on your sprayer. So I was showing a picture earlier today of a crop where we had 10 heads and there were seven wheat midge on those 10 heads. And so each of those wheat midge will lay about four, three to four eggs on each kernel and that will wipe out the kernel. So at that kind of pest pressure, which can happen if conditions are right, we can get up to a 90% yield loss in a field. Oh my gosh. So back in the 1990s, we had that. We had hectares after hectares being sprayed and still $130 million in yield loss right here in Saskatchewan. Wow, just from wheat, wheat midge alone. Now, yeah. um, I believe you are working on um, midge tolerant wheat. So, the field behind us is not midge-tolerant wheat. This is a variety that doesn't carry the SM1 gene. Why? Because I'm trying to grow wheat midge right behind me. Yeah, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, why am I trying to do that? So that I can test out the next generation of midge-tolerant wheat. So, we're looking for other genes, other resistance genes. Because right now, we've got one resistance gene. So, it's called SM1. S stands for cytodiplosis, M stands for mosolana. You put them together and you've got the scientific name of the wheat midge. So, one gene, one single mode of resistance, and it's the first gene and the only gene. So, if midge overcomes it, and there have been some midge that have overcome it, we're going to wind up losing that resistance gene. And it has been a boon to farmers. $36 an acre. The Agronomist is brought to you by The Wheat School, Pests and Predators, and Wheat Pete's Word. Each Wednesday, Peter Wheat Pete Johnson answers your top agronomy questions in this dynamic podcast, covering soil health, cover crops, planting, herbicides, and so much more. Have a question? Leave him a message at one 746 3311 send him a tweet at Wheat Pete, or email him at pjohnson at realagriculture.com. So Tyler, I took furious notes and I don't know. Yeah. Uh, Ray says it looked like the anthers were out already. So yes, that's true. It was already for that particular field. If we were scouting to make a spray decision, probably a little late. Um, you also, but you did roll out some numbers and I don't know if they're true or not because you're the expert. So Santosh, did you find an, a mistake? Um. I am not aware of any wheat midge that has uh, developed resistance to the gene I, yet. I wondered about that. Ooh, interesting. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll start yeah. off first okay. with, I'm glad I wore my black shirt because that would look funny. <laughs> wearing the exact same <laughs> if shirt. If you were wearing the same shirt. Oh, Jason, right. weighs in. Shouldn't the threshold be one per five? One yeah. per four or five heads. Oh. Ray doesn't get a hat. Jason gets a hat. <laughs> Jason gets a hat. 
Purdue Santosh DJ doesn't get a hat either. <laughs> so, okay. So the, so the threshold is one per four or five heads. Yeah. So that is the yield threshold of one on four or five heads. I just say one on five heads. And I did that in the field, yeah. but you know, sometimes when you're standing in a field with a camera in your face, you get things backwards. So the grade threshold is one on 10 heads. The yield threshold right. is one on 15 heads. Sir, one in five heads. I did it again. See, uh, and, we got yeah. it. We got and it. And Santosh, yeah. there are midge, individual midge, who can survive on SM1 wheat. We had some mm. at our farm. We had some at a USASC farm, and Marge Smith found them probably at Brandon early on. So that's why we need the SM1 gene to be in that refuge. So if you're buying a midge tolerant wheat, now. it's going to end in VB, bridal blend. Yes. Let's talk about that now. Um, but please, Tyler, tell me you squashed all those, the ones that survived? Yeah. Well, they were in the lab. <laughs> okay. Um, so actually, they were getting dead. Funny story. After we started talking about those, our wheat geneticists said, where are they? I want them. Because we're trying to find oh. the genetic right. um, trigger that makes them be able to survive on SM1 right. wheat. And you were like, sorry, they're in, they're squished. In my palm. No, um, no. I said, <laughs> hey, Christy, my grad student, did you keep those yeah. midge? And let's try to find those. Mm, let's try. Um, DNA okay. degrades over so, time, though, if you don't store it properly. So it might right. be a moot point so, there. And we'll just look for more. Yep, just look for more. Okay, so but this is always a risk in any time we apply a selection pressure. So whether that's spraying a herbicide or spraying an insecticide or choosing genetic resistance, that that is something that nature is going to potentially have an adaptation for already or develop one over time. So, so Santosh, explain then how, as the wheat breeder, you create these lines that have the SM1 gene and maybe this other one. Um, but then when these lines get released, they have, they're a varietal blend. What does a varietal blend mean? So when I see a name followed by VB, what does that mean? Right. So um, for obvious reasons that we discussed, um, a variety that has SM1 gene, every seed, every plant that grows out of the seed will have the SM1 gene. Now, when you plant it across thousands of acres and hectares, um, the midge insect doesn't have any any plant that it can survive on. So it starts to develop that resistance mechanism. To prolong the effectiveness of that gene, uh, it was proposed um, that if we plant some susceptible varieties with the resistant ones, then the midge can go and lay eggs on those and then they can, they can, they can still eat and not develop resistance. But um, the challenge is that the variety that we are growing and the one that is being mixed should be very similar. Um, right. It should have similar maturity, similar height, similar um, test weight. Um, and as, as much as possible, they should be very similar, but these are more right. important traits. And yeah. that allows, um, so when we make the blend, uh, which is 90% of the resistant and 10% susceptible, the, the farmers get this blend and they grow it. That allows the insect 
to still be able to feed without developing resistance. But they can do it for two years. So the varietal blend can be grown for two years under the meat stewardship and details are on the website. Uh, after which they have to go and buy uh, certified seed again. Yep. This is done to make sure that the ratio doesn't change because if, if the ratio changes, you may have um, more of the mid resistant line because it tends to survive. Uh, mm -hmm. The seed count for the from the harvest may be lower on the susceptible because it was right. devastated by midge. So to maintain that balance, we have to go back to the certified seed and make sure that there is that 90 to 10 or close to that ratio when we are growing it. Mm -hmm. And that's why all the midge tolerant varieties are are sold as varietal blends, and it is encouraged that they are grown as such as well. Mm -hmm. Right. So the year I buy, so if it's if it was 2023, I bought a varietal blend, I grow it out, I can save some of that harvest, plant it this year, but that would be the last year I could do that with from that seed purchase. I would have to buy a new batch of certified varietal blend for 2025. Um, yeah. right. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. And, and so that, and that's a, a good way to think about it is as you harvest the, the susceptible variety is probably not going to yield as much if midge pressure was high, especially. And so what that you is, save might, might have, you know, proportionately less than, than that 10%. In the that sample. is correct. Uh, let's say if the variety yeah. okay. that we mix is a later maturing variety. So, your mid resistant variety matures fast and the later maturing variety is still developing, then you have lots yeah. of green seed, um, seeds yeah. that are not fully formed and they are, they may be heavier in weight, they may be lighter in weight, they may fall off the combine on the backside. There are many reasons yeah. why the ratios get, uh, uh, get affected. So that's why we make mm -hmm. sure that uh, a blend is chosen um, very carefully with all these in mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I can't imagine that's super easy, but I, I understand a lot of work goes into trying to match those what, lines. Yeah, um, and what, as, as what breeders as do, yes, and what breeders do is once, uh, if there is a slight uh, deviation in ratio when the, the blend is being increased, uh, we can always certify a different, uh, under circumstances that are not within the control of the farmers or environmental conditions that uh, that uh, create some challenges. Uh, there is some room to play with those ratio, but we would like to stay to that 90, 90 to 10. 90 to 10. So Tyler, as, as the one who studies the insects, knowing that there is this other gene that maybe doesn't work quite as effectively, but could be used in tandem, how much of a difference does that make when we talk about that selection pressure? If we have you know, potentially two ways um, that we're fighting this insect versus one. What does that, how much does that improve our chances, let's say? Okay, interesting. The number that pops into my head is about a 25% reduction in eggs being laid. So I'm going to stick mm. with that because you can get anywhere right. from 25 to about 50% reduction in mm. overposition pressure on those overposition deterrent plants. So okay. we've actually, out of uh, the University of Winnipeg lab run by Alejandro Costamagna, we've got a, a guy named Chiminda who came out of my same PhD lab. And Dr. Chiminda has been 
figuring out the mechanism of overposition deterrence, and it's been very cool. So imagine my head so, is a wheat spike. Okay. That's easy. It to shouldn't be very so thank hard. you for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, yes. where my hands are, this is the head space. And so I'm using my uh -huh. head as an example because it's the okay. head space. In this uh -huh. head space are about three compounds that need to be in the proper ratio for a wheat midge female to say, this is a wheat spike. I'm going to go land on Tyler's head. Right. If those are out of ratio, she's like, oh, I'm not really sure if that's a good head mm. to go lay eggs on. and I'm not going to fly there. Right. And so <laughs> Chiminda's figured out what is going on in that overposition deterrence gene and what is going on with that overposition deterrent trait. So it's mixing up the ratios so that the wheat midge is like, I'm not really sure if this is a good yeah. place. Um, that's, is, that's fascinating. And so the number we're, let's say, going with about a 25% egg laying reduction, roughly. Yeah. So that came out of some earlier okay. papers. Um, problem yeah. with overposition deterrence, and I know that Santos said it's in one place. Um, there are a couple of other places on the genome that we're getting these quantitative trait low size flashing up that might also be overposition deterrence. So we might be able to look at a few different genetic regions and get them into one plant and have multiple overposition deterrence. And that could be the interplay of the different volatiles in that headspace coming from okay. different places on the genome. And, you know, one's being upregulated, one's being downregulated. Maybe something is in that mix that the wheat midge doesn't actually like the smell of. Yeah. So definitely more research yet to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, now you mentioned, and and as we're, our time starts to run out here, I do want to talk about the year ahead. Uh, Producer Jay, if you could bring up, we did get uh, the survey from 2023 uh, from Saskatchewan. Again, I'll note, uh, there isn't one from Manitoba. Um, and any of you Albertans, if you want to shout out, if you've got anything to share, that'd be great too. Um, now, I will, so this just came out today. I thought, what lucky timing. It's like they knew I was going to host the show tonight. Um, so this is the, this is a midge survey. And the press release that came out with this stipulated um, that we're calling it the 2023 survey. We are not calling it a 2024 forecast um, for reasons. You can ask Saskatchewan about that. Um, but Tyler, when we map any insect population, some of them can be a good indication of where we might be looking for trouble. Sometimes it's not super related. It all depends on the pest. Looking back over the last few years with the reduced moisture, is it really that moisture drives our biggest problems or is a survey like this a really good indicator of where I need to be looking for these pests? Well, that's why we do these surveys, because it is a really good indicator. In those red okay. areas, cool. if they get enough rainfall in a big dump, mm -hmm. this is one of the things that we've been figuring out lately, the wheat midge will come out of the ground. So in those red okay. hot spots, those are actual wheat midge that are not parasitized that are in the ground. Mm -hmm. And so... Okay. Um, that whole area that you see on the map yeah. there, um, they take surveys from over 400 fields and they're soil coring it. And so you punch a few soil cores in a field, you rinse off the soil and you count the wheat midge pupae that are in the ground. And so this is based on actual numbers of wheat midge. When I say okay. viable, 
Right. Or when the map says viable as well, that means I don't have a parasitoid sitting in my gut. Because if I did, the following year, you're going to get a little wasp coming out and you're not going to get a wheat midge coming out. And is so, there, uh, sorry, yeah. and I know I know this isn't your survey, but do they also, is there somewhere that they keep track of how many have been um, attacked by a parasitoid? And is there a map of that? Because that would be cool. There isn't a map. If you ask nicely, you can get that data. Okay. Writing it down. Um, I will send out hats to everybody who can get that for me. Okay. So, but that is something you can actually see, right? Is that, and Tyler, maybe let's back up a step. How does the parasitoid attack the wheat midge? All right. Because this is cute. So, our main parasitoid, Macroglenys penetrans, is a little pteromallid wasp. And it is really well synchronized with the wheat midge that is really well synchronized with the spring wheat. So female comes out and about seven days later, the parasitoid comes out because that parasitoid is looking to lay its eggs into the eggs or those first instar larvae of the wheat midge. And then that egg develops inside the body of the wheat midge larva to a certain point. And then that wheat midge larva you could probably throw that up on the screen, the third instar wheat oh. midge larva. And those things yeah. drop to the ground whenever you get the rains in August. And then they, there they go. So then they'll dig into the ground and they form an overwintering cocoon. Now we saw that pupa already at the beginning with the devil horns. Mm -hmm. And that thing um, doesn't happen if it's been parasitized. So... You get, okay. you get the, uh, the cocoon, the wheat midge starts coming out, and it's like, oh, now the parasitoid is going to burst out through my body wall, and I'm dead. Nice. Um, and so I really then like, they'll do their own I, little uh, patient. Okay, uh, that's <laughs> my next question. So then they yeah, then went, they and then they the emerged. Okay. Yeah. And then okay. they emerge about seven days after the females start to come and out. It, so and this is it, another reason for not hopping on your sprayer too late because you can torch all of those parasitic wasps in the field. And so I've been putting up yellow sticky cards to try to catch wheat midge, but I took out 3000 parasitic wasps over a three day period in my field. And, and so how many to qualify midge did you catch? that, zero, yeah. I caught zero midge. Oh. Yeah. Um, so the midge aren't really, very attracted to yellow sticky cards, but apparently the parasitoids no. are. But what yes. that does tell me is why I'm having trouble getting my midge nursery over that grade threshold of one on 10 heads, mm -hmm. which I'm out there 8.30 at nights for way too many nights in the summer. <laughs> looking July. for those females yeah. in July. Yeah. And I'm like, what? where are all the females? So they're being suppressed by the wheat midge population that has, sorry, the wheat midge parasitoid population parasitoid. that's built up in my field. Just get Santosh to send you some. He's got lots at Brandon. He said. I may have He's to do that. Yeah. yeah, just get them. Okay, so that, so we, given, you know, conditions, the parasitoid could be a very, uh, is another tool in the toolbox. It's one that we don't necessarily have a lot of control over, but Tyler, as you said, it, it is something that we can at least not harm um, yeah. by making sure that, that if we're, if we are going to spray, we're not, we're not too late. Cause as you said, they come out seven days later, right? So 
fits in philanthropies and yeah, probably too late. Um, Santosh, I want to um, look at some of the upcoming lines. Producer Jay, if you could put up uh, the list of wheat lines that are coming. Because one of my questions is, of course, so that video that Tyler did was from about four years ago. Um, How have we done since, Santosh, as far as... Like, are these, I know that some of these are quite new, and as, and maybe you can explain the asterisks on the bottom. I'm just going to yeah. shout out, though, I did, I did ask this question of Santosh uh, before we went live. And if anyone's curious, yes, the Dutton might have some Yellowstone connection. Anyway, okay, so, so walk us through here. Uh, some of these are, are relatively new. Some of these are, are, what is the single asterisk for dirt? What does that mean? Yeah, so I'll just uh, quickly mention that uh, a list of lines is is available on the website, but uh, and it covers most of the wheat classes, not just the CWRS, which is what I have mentioned yes. here. So these are all CWRS yep. lines. Uh, most of the producers, farmers would be uh, very familiar with Wheatland and Starbuck. Uh, they may have mm-hmm. seen or heard about Hodge or grown Hodge as well. Uh, Dutton is a new line from our program that is with Seacan, and yes, there is a, a uh, a town called Dutton in close to Winnipeg that used to have an elevator and uh, not anymore. So we mm-hmm. commemorized the, the, the location. Uh, but I love that show and I was very uh, pleased <laughs> to, uh, to use the name Dutton. Uh, yeah, it should be available uh, from Seacan very soon. Walker okay. is another line that, uh, that is uh, from our program and is with FP Genetics and should be available two years from now, uh, if not sooner. Um, Darby is a unique one, which is five days earlier than Carberry, uh, yields 5% more than Carberry. And if people, if you are in, in, in those um, early maturing reasons, uh, when you want early maturing varieties uh, in the Parkland region, for example, or Swan Driven area, that's where you would uh, you know like to grow Darby because it's, quite a bit early maturing, it's CWRS, and it has a line called Hassler. Uh, the challenge with Darby was just a small story about, you know, all breeding lines have stories, but one story about they Darby do. was that it never sold actually when we released it because it was so early, we didn't have any refuge for it. There was nothing close uh, to that early okay. maturing that we could blend in it. So I was challenged by the seed companies that if you have a line that is not much tolerant and is as early, then we'll buy both from you because we have nothing to blend with it. And next year, by the grace of God, we had Hassler, which looks exactly like Darby, but without SM1 and five days earlier than Carberry. So that, that that made the dynamic duo and uh, that's when this variety was released. Uh, again, this is with FP Genetics. Uh, 1595 is a new line from Richard Cuthbert's program out of Swift Current. Amazing line, very good uh, straw strength, high yielding, mid tolerant. And 1127 is a new line that we are proposing to the Prairie Green Development Committee this year for support of registration. It is a mid tolerant line. And so far, this is the highest yielding line from our program. So. If it gets supported okay. and if it falls into the CWRS class, that that hopefully will be available to the farmers soon. Okay. Um, uh, how long does it usually take from, so where this one is now that you're putting forward to registration? How many years then of, let's say it goes through, how long until yeah. it's commercially available? Um, 
I would say between four and five. Uh, I yep. don't think I have seen anything earlier than that, especially if the companies who are uh, very interested in it and are willing to to do an increase, like an off-season increase yep. in New Zealand, then they they accelerate that that cycle yep. or the pipeline and and can make it available sooner. But I would say between mm -hmm. three and five years. Okay. So um, everyone out there, uh, become a wheat breeder. You can spend your winter in New Zealand, um, or at least part of it. Anyway, Santosh, you're a very smart man, let me tell you. Um, that's super cool. And I love that we have breeding programs that do these things. And I love that there are that there are stories for all of these lines. One of my favorite stories about Carberry is I was at the Swift Current Research Station with Ron DePaul when he had not yet, uh, Carberry and much more were just coming out. And he showed me on the, he had the lineage on his wall and he, he wrote in where they would go on there and he told me their names before they were actually official. And I felt so incredibly special. Anyway, that's my Carberry story and my Ron DePaul story. So there you go. Um, okay, we are out of time. Um, this, this is fantastic. Thank you. Sandosh, thank you for joining us from New Zealand. Uh, thank sorry you for having me. To take over your afternoon. Um, and Tyler, thank you for your gruesome pictures. Uh, we really appreciate how disgusting the insects are. We really do. Um, You're welcome. All right. <laughs> yes. And thanks so much, of course, to everyone joining me in the comment section and watching along tonight. Uh, head on over to realagriculture.com slash agronomist to get those CEU credits. And uh, next week, of course, is uh, depending on where you are, it's family day, it's Louis Riel day, uh, but it is a holiday next uh, Monday. So the agronomist will return the week after that. So no agronomist next week. Just keep that in mind. Um, and with that, thank you so much, uh, Santosh and Tyler, and everybody have a great night. Cheers, everybody. Good night, thank everyone. Bye-bye.